When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com living and striving for myself i never really had like a purpose like Mm. if truth and morality and what we live for is all subjective then like there's nothing really concrete i ever had to rest in and jesus was that he was concrete and there was a purpose for suffering which is something unique i never really heard before being exposed to christianity is there's a purpose and there's actually like beauty in suffering Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. I don't know about you, but in a culture of deconstruction, where we see it all over our social media news feeds, isn't it refreshing to hear a story of somebody who grew up without religion? They grew up without the uh, environment of a church community. They didn't have Christian parents or pastors surrounding them as they grew up. And then they hear the gospel. They investigate the claims of Christianity. They come to the conclusion it's true and then commit their lives to Christ. We have for you today two refreshing stories of of people who didn't grow up in the Christian church. The first, we're going to talk with a guy named Michael Ray Lewis. Michael was a very ardent atheist before he started investigating the evidence for the existence of God, and he became persuaded that the Christian worldview was true, which led him to place his faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's working on a really cool project. He's a filmmaker and a really good one. So he's working on a project to present some of this evidence in a really compelling way. We're going to talk with him. We're going to watch his movie trailers. And for those of you listening on audio platforms, you'll be able to hear the the trailers, but you can go on YouTube if you want to see what they look like. And then the second story we're going to hear from is a girl named Eliza. She's a college student who became a Christian after encountering a campus ministry and hearing the gospel. We're going to listen to what she has to say. We're going to hear her story. And we're really going to hear from her and her campus pastor about what 
college-aged kids are facing on their campuses when it comes to things like the self-love messages that we see everywhere, live your truth, and how that's all bearing out on the college campus and kind of the state of college campus ministry. So we've got a jam-packed episode for you today. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe and click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. And of course, once again, if you're listening on audio platforms, Guys, it helps so much if you leave a good review, if you share it with your friends on social media. And I just wanna say one thing before we get into our first interview with Michael. Um, if you have, at this point, gotten a copy of my new book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, it really, I can't express to you how much it helps if you go to places like Amazon, Goodreads, Barnes & Noble, Tar anywhere, you, you get it. I don't know if it's even on Target, but you know if it is. <laughs> and if you leave good reviews there, what that does for example, with Amazon, it signals Amazon to suggest that to more people. Like if somebody looks at an apologetics book and they see that there are a lot of good reviews for this one, they might suggest it to them. So it's just a little thing you can do to help support the ministry, just going there and leaving a five-star review. Uh, of course, that's if you think it's you know, I don't. I want you to be honest. You know, if you, if I only want you to leave that five star review if you think that it's worth it and that that it uh, earns it. Um, but you know, it really does help to get the conversation going. And also, another little trick you can do is just go in and like other good reviews that you think are helpful because that will push those to the top of. Uh, the list there. All right, guys, I, I'm really excited for you to meet Michael Ray Lewis. We've we've just been together in Texas where I was a part of this film that he's making. And one of the reasons I wanted to have him on my podcast, and I'll share this with you as you as we get into the interview, but one of the reasons is because he's funding this whole thing himself. So he's trying to raise money to make this film. And I think when you see the trailer, you're going to see that this is something you're going to want to be a part of. Um, I've personally donated to it. This is not a paid sponsorship. I, do, I make zero money from this. So this is just me wanting to present this to you as an opportunity to really get behind something that I think could be a majorly impactful evangelistic resource to people who have not grown up believing that Christianity is true, and even to people who maybe have been persuaded that even if they were raised in the church, that it's not true, that science and faith are somehow in contradiction. This film is going to present the best arguments for God's existence and the truthfulness for Christianity from some of the best resources available and does it in such a aesthetically beautiful uh, and pleasing way and just with such Excellence. All right, well, I want to get right into my conversation with Michael Ray Lewis. The film is called Universe Designed. You can go to turtlemoonfilms.com to donate. Check it out. I'm so fascinated with your story. Uh, I've shared before on the podcast that I grew up in a Christian home, and I don't really even remember a time in my life before I was aware of the presence of God or that the Bible was his word. So it's always refreshing to me to get to hear from someone who became an, a Christian as an adult, who heard the gospel, responded to the gospel. But you were actually um, quite an ardent atheist, weren't you? I'd love to hear your story of coming to Christ. So I, I grew up I, I grew up in a, a loving family home, and one of the things that um, we didn't talk to very often about was God. and whenever I would interact with Christians, it would always be the Christians that were kind of hypocritical in, in their um, in their conversations with unbelievers. And I always just had this view of Christianity as just being false. It was just wrong. Mm. Um, I would watch documentaries that would almost poke fun at Christianity. And I would just hop on board with that because I just didn't think it was true. Um, fast forward a little bit. I get married as an atheist. 
And she is a believer, but she's, she's pretty pulled away from the church. And we were married for about uh, a couple of years. And then she tells me one day that she feels like Jesus is calling her back. Um, I remember I just sat there and I was like, okay, sure. I, I, I get that. Um, so I decided that I would go to church with her just to kind of make her happy. And I went and I would look around at the congregation and I would say, yeah, I see how this is good for people to have some kind of something to hope in. I just don't think it's true. Um, but after a while, I started to get irritated and I didn't want to keep mm. going. So I kind of made it a goal to slowly try to convince her that God didn't exist. Um, in that process, though, however, she was resistant and she was constantly trying to explain it to me as best she could, even though she didn't have the answers to the difficult questions. And um, she was constantly trying to, uh, and she even purchased a Bible while I was still an unbeliever. But the more I dug into it and the more I looked for answers, um, I realized that there are really good arguments for Christianity. And this wasn't just like an overnight process. This was something that took three years um, of me just constantly trying to prove her wrong. But every avenue that I took and everything that I looked at with Christianity held so it held to be true. And after that three years of constantly trying to prove her wrong, I, I sat there and I remember I, I had written down five pages full of questions. And she told me, she's like, I don't know what to, I don't know what the answers are. I'm going to send you to someone and let him try to answer some of the questions that you have. And when she did, I, I went to meet with this guy and I just hammered him with all of these questions. And at the end of the conversation, he had answered everything on my page, on my list of questions. Wow. And I sat there and I was like, why am I still questioning this? Every, um, every aspect that I looked at Christianity held to be true. And it was that night on the drive home that I gave my life to Christ. It was just, it, it, I was overwhelmed by the evidence. And even though I didn't want to become a Christian because I, I, it was more of that heart issue in me, um, I finally threw my hands up and I said, okay, if, if this is actually real, then I'm going to give my life to you. Wow. At that moment, I remember coming home and it was almost like a fog had left over me. And it's ironic because as an atheist, I always thought Christians were narrow-minded. But at that moment in time, I realized how narrow-minded I was as an atheist. And it was like this fog that came over me and I could finally see things for the way that they actually were. Wow. And the only thing I can, I can uh, grant or, or uh, think that that was, was the Holy Spirit. It was the inner witness of the Holy Spirit finally revealing himself to me. And wow. Um, it wasn't just the evidence that was there, but it was that also that personal experience that I had with Jesus as well. But it was the evidence that got me there. And when I became a believer, I just assumed that every Christian knew this stuff. Like they all came through the same avenue that I did to Christianity, but I quickly realized that wasn't true at all. Um, in fact, the majority of Christians that I would talk to weren't able to defend what they believed. And it became a passion of mine to share the evidences that I found with everyone that I come in contact with. I talk to unbelievers on a weekly basis. I, I run into people at the grocery store and have great conversations about God. And people, um, I, I believe Christians a lot of time are, are too nervous or scared to have those conversations because they're afraid they're going to get asked a question that they can't answer. Mm. And um, I, I, so my, my, my passion now is just to share the evidences that I have with Christians and with non-believers. And it's because if this is actually true, it literally means everything. Yeah. Um, and so once I've come to realize that I've given my life to, to Christ and given my life to trying to, to share with others and, and bring other people into the kingdom of God. 
Well, we were connected through Frank Turek. So I got an email mm -hmm. from Frank saying, hey, you got to meet this guy, Michael. He's working on this project. And part of the reason, Michael, I wanted you to, to come on the podcast is because we were just together in Dallas where you interviewed me for a project you have coming out. And so w once we connected via email, you sent me a trailer. And I want my mm -hmm. audience to see this trailer because, guys, okay. I want you all to see the quality, the excellence, the beauty of what Michael is creating. But before we show the trailer, just give us a short little introduction to what we're about to see and, uh, and, and what's the bigger project you're working on. So in that three years that I was telling you about, I, I read tons and tons of books from Frank Turek, from Hugh Ross, um, from Greg Kokel, and all of these people are, are these resources are the resources that brought me to, to Christianity, that brought me to believe that it's actually true. Um, and I've, I've been in the film industry for 10 years now, and I've been waiting to make my first feature film. And my wife told me, she's like, well, why don't you make a documentary on the evidence for God? I said, I'm going to do that. And I sent emails to Frank. I sent emails to Hugh, not expecting any of these guys to respond to me. And, and every single one of them responded and said, of course, we'll do it. And so I'm putting together a documentary, basically um, asking all of these scholars the hard and difficult questions that I had as an atheist. Um, all of those, that list that I had told you about, I'm going to each one of you guys and asking those difficult questions. And, and my goal with the film is to present the evidence that's there and, and help people to realize that there are good arguments for God's existence, but to do it in a, in a creative, uh, stylistic way to appeal to, to the secular world as well. Yeah, and that's the thing about it is it really, it's aesthetically so beautiful. It's done with such high quality and excellence. And that's why, I mean, the second I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, I'm in. Like, I, I have to do this. This is, because a lot of times people are really good at presenting the information, but they don't have that component of the aesthetic down, or they don't maybe know how to, to make a film that is this high quality. And so that's why I'm so excited about your project. But without any further ado, I want to let our viewers see this trailer. And if you're listening on audio platforms, you'll be able to, to listen to the words. So you'll still get the gist of what's going on. You won't get to see the beauty of it unless you go over to YouTube, but it's there if you want to go look at it on YouTube. But let's take a look at the trailer. question, why is there something rather than nothing, is something the philosopher Leibniz proposed. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why does anything exist? Where do the building blocks of life come from? The fundamental constants and parameters and characteristics that have to assume exacting, precise values if life is going to be possible in the universe. People look around and they say, why are things the way they are? Scientists believe there's an intelligible answer to that, meaning there is a reason for the way things are. What's that reason? We see design in the universe and design in life, that's the effect, so we reason back to a cause of designer. It was astronomy that persuaded me that the Bible was the inspired, inerrant word of the one that created the universe. I wanted to see if the evidence that I was finding for the resurrection of Jesus would withstand the toughest of critical scrutiny. 
No one in the history of anyone has had the impact that Jesus of Nazareth has had in literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions. All right. We're gonna, there we go. We're going to cheer again. Yeah. <laughs> so really long cheer. My audience will recognize some of the faces in uh, in the trailer that they just saw. They're, they will have seen Frank and, of course, Greg and, and some others you've interviewed so far. Frank Turek, Greg Kokel, Hugh Ross, Jay Warner Wallace, Stephen Meyer, Mary Jo Sharp, Mike Lacona, and you, you're slated to interview Sean McDowell. You've interviewed me. Interviewed. You've interviewed me. And um, I, I got to tell you, I'm really excited. And so part of the reason, I just want to do a little bit of a pitch for this at the beginning, and then we'll dig more into more information. But one of the reasons, Michael, I said I want to have you on the podcast is because you are basically self-funding this, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, so, the entire so project. I, it's yeah, it's it's self-funded, you guys. And so, like, I thought, let's have Michael on the podcast, and let's all go over to his website and donate so he can finish this project. What, what do you need uh, to—like, what else needs to be done to finish this project? So I have done about total about 10 interviews. I have about six more to do. I have still tons of B-roll to film. Um I have to do motion graphics to, because a lot of these things that we're describing, especially within astronomy and biology, I, I want to be able to show um, while while the interviews are, are explaining it, I want to be able to show it visually to the audience so that it helps them to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and just to bring that, that higher production value and, and really appeal to um, just that creative side of the film. And I, I want to, uh, after that, I've also got to do the music and all of the post-production. So we're still in the early stages of it um, right now. The main reason I put together the trailer was to just show people what it will be like, just mm -hmm. to give you an example. Um, all of the footage that we see, none of it's stock footage. It's all, all the motion graphics and the planets are being custom made. Uh, so I wanted I want to be as, um, as, as creative as I can with the project and, and, and not outsourcing like stock footage or anything like right, that as well. Right. Um, I want it to be unique in what it is. Well, and I also want to let everyone know, this is not a paid sponsorship. Michael did not ask me to do this. I'm not making any money from this. I just really want to turn my audience on to what you're doing so that we can help support you to finish this project. Because guys, this is going to be an amazing film that you could show anyone who's even hostile to Christianity, someone who's curious, someone who's really not that curious, but the, the excellence of the quality of it is so high. Um, this is the best arguments for Christianity presented in the best way. So Michael, where can people go if they want to support you um, and donate to help you finish this film? Uh, just the website. It's the name of the film.com. So universedesigned.com universedesigned.com. Make sure you go there and man, contribute because this is a worthwhile cause. So Michael, I'm just curious to dig down a little bit more into your story. You mentioned that you went to your wife and you asked her all these questions and she didn't have answers. Now, I know a lot of Christians have had experiences where people came to them and they could not answer some of the, the questions. And yet, I think it's hugely encouraging to see that you still came to faith in Christ. You know, we're, I think sometimes we carry so much on our own shoulders, like we are personally responsible for every single person's salvation. So what were you thinking when your wife couldn't answer the questions? Did you think, well, she can't answer, so nobody can, or maybe Christianity really is? 
false or, or you know, what was going on in your mind when she was unable to come up with the answers to what you were asking? So obviously she was my wife, so I didn't want to hammer her too hard. Um, and, but she was persistent. And I noticed that whenever I, I was asking her the difficult questions, even though she couldn't answer them, I was in no way persuading her that Christianity wasn't true. Mm. She was, she was completely firm in, in her belief on it. And it, I think it started, that's what got my, the wheel spinning in me. And when I started really digging into, uh, learning more about it, I remember I stumbled across one of, uh, Hugh Ross's videos on YouTube. And there were some things in that video that he said that just kind of piqued my interest. And I, and I thought to myself, I was like, maybe there is a little bit of merit to some of this Christianity stuff. And that's, that was the moment when I really started buying books and trying to study into it as much as I could. I looked into other world religions as well, because I wasn't going to just jump straight on Christianity and assume that that was the one true religion. So I was looking at all the other world religions and trying to figure out, well, if God does exist, then which one of these is, is true because only one of them can be true. And um, it was through that process that I, I realized there are so many great resources out there um, that are the, of, of apologists that are just giving great evidences for God. And, and I had no idea that any of this existed um, prior to, to her becoming a Christian and, mm. and starting to challenge her with those difficult questions. Um, but it, it paid out. For the end, I mean, it, yeah. once I, I, I remember when I came home that day, she was sitting on the couch and she was like, so, so how'd it go? I was like, well, I, I think I believe. <laughs> wow. and, that, and, and, and that was it. And at that moment, it was just my entire life. My perspective on everything changed. I changed, obviously. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, I grew so excited. And then I, I started learning more about what scripture says and just diving in deeper and every everything that I would learn or the more information that I would learn would just get me excited about God. Wow. And it, it, it's like, every time I learn more about him, it's like this fire burns in me. And then I just want to share it with everyone and try to um, let everyone know that there's good answers out there and mm. we can know them. Now this, this friend that you just hammered with questions and you said he was able to answer all the questions. That's a bit unusual, too, <laughs> that you would find mm -hmm. somebody that would have answers for everything. Was this somebody that had studied apologetics, or how were you connected with this person? How did your wife know him? So he, his name was Tom, and uh, he, I think he had previously gone to my wife's church. And he was a friend of the family with her parents. And I remember she couldn't answer the questions, and he was the only person that came off the top of her head to, to mm. send me to. And I remember it was super awkward at first. I went in and, and, and sat down and started to have a conversation with him. But I did notice one thing is that everything or every question that I asked him, he would reference to scripture. Oh. And, and he would always bring up, he would bring up the scripture and go to scripture and then would explain things through scripture. And, and I remember at the end of the conversation, I was just sitting there. And these were, these were questions kind of at the bottom of my list that, that were, um, I had already looked at all the evidence as far as the origins of the universe mm. and origins of life and fine tuning and all of that. Um, so this was specific questions in, in scripture, in the Bible. And I remember at the end of it, I sat there and I, I just, I couldn't question it anymore. I, wow. I couldn't even think of any more questions to ask the guy because I was, I was convinced. What were some of the questions you asked him? I'm just curious from an atheist perspective, you've already studied evidence for the existence of God, design. Uh, fine-tuning all of that what were the theological questions you had that you brought to most of them were the, the deity of jesus oh okay um like if, what the bible claims about that 
Right, exactly. What what Jesus claimed about himself, what he actually said, um, questions about salvation, trying to understand how that even worked. Because I believe prior to that, I never really understood what the gospel message was. One of the um, objections I would always tell my wife is, I just can't believe in a God who's going to send me to hell for just not being able to believe in him. That was one of my objections, but it was because I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't understand what the gospel message was. And I just assumed that God was sending me to hell just because I couldn't believe in him. Mm. And, and, and so I, that's one of the things that was, that was holding me back. And um, so it was specifically questions just surrounding the deity of Jesus and what, what the gospel really says. I see that all the time. I, I see that mm-hmm. all the time. Atheists saying things like, oh, God's going to send me to hell just because I didn't believe in him. How would you answer that today if, if somebody were skeptical about Christianity and, and that's what they said to you? What might be your answer now? Well, my answer would be that God's not sending you anywhere. You're sending yourself there. And God's not going to force you into a relationship with him against your will. Yeah. Uh, and, and I never understood that. I never understood mm. just the fact that Christ had come and suffered a, a punishment that I could never even imagine just so that I could come into a right, right relationship with God. Mm. And if he's going to do all that, he's just for us to come into a right relationship with him. And the, the, the offer's free. It's free for us to come and give our lives to him. That it, it, he's not, there's, there's nothing we have to do or nothing we can do um, it's everything that Christ has done for us. And that's how I would answer it. It's the fact that we're not, I mean, he's not sending us anywhere. We're sending ourselves there. We're already, um, most of us inwardly, it's a heart issue and we don't mm. want God. Mm. And well, I think Frank, uh, Frank has said this before that if we don't want God now, what makes us think we're going to want him for eternity? Yeah. I always want to ask atheists, you know, let's just even put the nature of hell to the side for a moment, whatever mm-hmm. you think hell is. Let's even just say it's a, you're sitting in on a park bench just without God. Okay, let's not even right. go there. Like, you know, we'll just put that to the side. Why would you want to go to heaven? Like, what do you think heaven is? That's always my question is, if you right. hate God now, if you don't want to be in his presence now, and you don't like the way he runs things, you don't like what he has instituted, what he has created. You don't like the, you know, the the laws that he's come up with. Why would you want to be under that and in that for eternity? That makes no sense to me at all. But I I, I do think, you know, that's that's such a strong point though, especially as an atheist. I, I'm curious, did you think before, did you kind of think you were generally a good person or oh, I mean, yeah. was there a, a revelation that you had at a certain point? Like, oh, I'm a sinner. Like I I really need this. I think um, I, like a lot of unbelievers at the time, always knew that there was something, that, there was something in me that was missing, right? Mm. Um, and there was always something you were trying to fill with think, different things in life and that would never fill that void that you have that's an eternal size void, right? And um, to that point with, with uh, heaven and hell also, like as an unbeliever and most unbelievers, I think even some Christians think this as well that their idea of heaven is we go to a place where we basically get everything we want. Mm. And it's just this, this oasis that we get to go into, uh, go into after we die. But in reality, we're going to be with Christ for eternity. We're going to be with God for eternity. And that is the heaven. That's mm. what it is. Yeah. 
And, and so for us, especially with me, with me saying that I didn't, I, I, I couldn't just, I couldn't believe in a God who's going to send me to hell for not believing in him. I didn't even understand who that God was. I didn't mm. understand what he had done for me. I didn't understand what heaven was. And so I, it was, it was really came down to just me not really understanding anything about the gospel or anything about what um, Christ had done or what, what scripture says about me and about reality. Um, it was just my ignorance, to be honest. Mm. And I noticed that a lot of people, when I have conversations with unbelievers, have a skewed idea of the gospel message. Most of them don't really understand what the gospel message is. Uh, they think it's either this list of commandments that you have to do to just be in a right relationship with God um, or these things not to do. I noticed that as well, mm -hmm. that a lot of people are, um, I'll get them to a point where they look at the evidence and they're like, yeah, I believe this is, this is true, but I just, I don't want, I don't want my life to change. I'm happy with the things, way things are right now. And they look at, at it as this list of things not to do. If I, if I give my life to Christ, then mm -hmm. I'm going to have to do all these and not do all these. And in reality, it's just, if this is actually true, then why wouldn't you want to? Mm-hmm. Just give your life to them. And yeah. what do you lose? You lose things that in in the um, in eternal perspective are meaningless anyways. And they're not they're not gonna fill that that void that you have in, inside you. Um, that void that only an eternal being can fill. Yeah, and, and the more we're renewed in our minds day by day, the more we want the things that are of God and the less we want the things that are, you know, sinful and that satisfy the lusts of the flesh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, so you mentioned that you had already investigated some of just the basic arguments for the existence of God, like what we call the teleological argument. The um, I'm sure you studied the moral argument. There's a lot of your film focuses on uh, creation, and it focuses on that kind of uh, thing. So what was maybe the first thing you started studying that you went, hmm, this actually has some merit to it? Uh, it was, I think, the most convincing one and the one that really piqued my interest was the fine-tuning. Mm. Can you tell just our audience a little bit about what that's about? Because I, I'd done one podcast on fine-tuning, oh, really? but it was a really long time ago. So why don't you okay. just give us a little rundown of that? So when I look out into the universe, when we look out into the universe, we see just stuff everywhere. And it goes on just seemingly eternally, right? Um, specifically if, from Hugh Ross's book, Why the Universe is the Way That It Is. That was one of the video that piqued my interest because what he says, and, and from my perspective is I always looked at, well, we're limited to this earth. If God existed, why would he just waste all this stuff and waste all this time when we're only here for a small fraction of a second compared to the time that the universe has been here, right? And um, after reading his book, I realized that no, all of this stuff is required. The size of the universe is required. The age of the universe is required. Every um, aspect about our solar system and our galaxy has to be specifically fine-tuned in order for us to be here. We have to have the right size sun at the right distance, the right size moon at the right distance, the right size planets within our solar system, the right area of our solar system within our galaxy, the right type of galaxy. And there's hundreds of these parameters that have to be finely tuned in order for us to be here. And then I dug even further and realized that you also have um, like... Uh, like uh, Hugh Ross says the uh, constants and quantities have to be finely tuned as well. The initial conditions of the universe at the early stages, there are so many of these parameters that have to be just right in order for us to be here. 
And I laugh now when I see people or I see videos on YouTube that pop up and say, oh, we found a planet at the right distance of the its star. It must have life on it. Like, yeah, you got one of them. But there's hundreds of other features that have to be fine-tuned in order for us to be here. And it, it just blew my mind because it, it, it doesn't make any sense why we're here. Mm. Because based on the odds, we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't yeah. be here at all. But yet here we are able to look into the universe and see all the way to the beginning of the creation event. We're able to see, um, uh, to study the universe and figure out that we are in a universe that sh we shouldn't be in. And it's just why are things the way they are? Why are we able here and able to ask these questions? Um, I think that was one of the most convincing ones was just mm. just the fact that we shouldn't be here, but we are. Yep. Yeah. Right why here. is there something rather than nothing? Nothing, right? Exactly. It's it's kind of that that question that it always comes back to for me. Mm -hmm. How do you, how does something become something out of nothing? Like how does right. that happen? <laughs> um, so okay, so fine tuning was a huge part of your journey. Um, tell us about the film, kind of the progression you take in the film. Do you cover things like the moral argument or do you kind of focus on cosm cosmology and design? Uh, how does, how does it flow? So I'm going to attempt to go through the, uh, why is there something rather than nothing question? The fact that we, we stop asking questions like this. Um, I cover the origins of the universe the fine-tuning of the universe, the origins of life, the fine-tuning of life. Um, then I shift gears into the moral argument. And then we go over the um, uh, historical uh, this historical evidence uh, around the manuscript evidence for the scriptures. Mm. Then I move into the historical accounts surrounding Jesus and the resurrection. And at the very end of the film, I give the gospel message, basically saying that if this is all true, then what does it say about me? What does it mm. say about reality? Um, and my goal is to include kind of a progression because, uh, I'm going to, the, the trailers that you're showing today are so that I can try to raise funds to finish the film, mm -hmm. but I'm going to target this to the secular world. So when I go to make the actual trailer, I'm going to be kind of vague in what the film is about. Just something about universe, intelligent design, um, things of that aspect. I'm not going to get into Christianity, um, or the gospel yet because I'm afraid that, if an unbeliever sees the trailers, sees that it's a Christian film, they're not going to click on it. Mm. And then they're never presented the evidence. Right. So that if I can target it in a way that the unbeliever will click on it, he's paid $3 to rent the film. He gets 30 minutes into it, realize, oh, this is a Christian film. You've already paid for it. Maybe you'll finish it. And if they finish it, then it gives it provides the true gospel message at the end that they probably never actually heard. Mm. Mm. They've never interacted with the actual gospel. Um, they have a skewed idea or um, perspective on what the gospel says, mostly because they just have never really looked into it or they've been told the wrong things or they're just assuming the wrong things. Mm. So um, with, with the film, kind of the way that you're talking about moving through the progression, what platforms mm -hmm. is this going to be available? I mean, is this going to be something you can rent on Netflix or on Amazon Prime or, or do you even know yet? Uh, my goal, if everything falls into place, is to tr try to get it on a platform like Netflix or Hulu. Um, but I realize you have to have good connections for that. And so we'll see what ends up happening. But if not, it will for sure be on Amazon Prime. 
Okay, great. Well, we're going to we're going to take a look at this second trailer here because I want people to to get excited about what they're uh what they're possibly going to help uh, you know, fund because again, guys, I really want you all to go over to Michael's website and give I'm going to be as soon as we're done recording this, I'm going to go over and I'm going to give I really want this to become to be funded because it's such a great idea and it's just executed with such excellence. So let's take a look at the second trailer. Look at the expansion of the galaxies away from one another. You trace that back in time, and what you got is a singularity. If you run time backwards, eventually you run into a boundary where space and time break down, the laws of physics cease, and there's a beginning. And if time had a beginning, whatever created time must be timeless. In other words, something that's uncreated, something that's eternal, something we might call God. The reason that we believe that God is true is because he's the best explanation for the way things are. Everything is exactly right for life. It forced me to ask the deep and difficult questions. Who is this creator and do I relate to that creator at all? Has God made himself known? I want to know what kind of impact has Jesus had? to see if the Creator is the Christian God, we have to see if Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, it's game, set, match. Man, I cannot wait for this. this. It just looks so good. And again, guys, I, this is not a paid sponsorship. I make zero dollars from this. This is just me saying, hey, Michael, I want you to come on my podcast so that my people can have the opportunity to support just this, this amazing idea. So, Michael, as we kind of close out our time together— what advice would you give to believers? I think it, it, you know, we have such a great opportunity here to hear from somebody who came into the faith as an atheist. You encountered lots of different types of Christians. You, you even mentioned Christians who couldn't defend what they believe. So what, uh, what advice would you give us? Um, first, I would say to, to, to really dig into it. One of the things about Christian apologetics that I love is every time I learn more just about creation, and about the evidence for God, it really, it, it deepens my relationship with him. And it encourages me and excites me and lights a flame in me to want to go and share it because I'm confident in what I believe. I know why I believe what I believe and I'm wanting and willing and feel like I need to share it with others. And so I would challenge you to really dig into the arguments, dig into the evidences because there's so many out there that are, that are absolutely amazing to have in your pocket when you have conversations with unbelievers. And I know that a lot of um, a lot of believers are scared to share their faith because they're afraid they're going to get asked that difficult question that they can't answer. Mm. And one of the things when you go to share with your faith is that will happen. It's going to happen. You're going to have conversations and they're going to ask you a question that you have no idea how to respond to. Um, but I challenge you to not end it there. Don't get don't get scared. Don't don't waver. Just be honest with them. Don't try to answer it if you don't know it. Be honest with them. Tell them you don't know, but I'll find out. And That's then go great. look into these resources um, and figure out what the answer is. And then I guarantee you the next time you have a conversation and that question comes up, you'll know what to say. You'll know how to That's respond. Good. And 
uh, Greg Kokel and uh, Frank Turek, all of these guys have so many great resources mm -hmm. and there's not really a question out there that hasn't been asked. And yeah. all you have to do is go and go and find it and, and dig into it. Um, I, I think that's what I, would be my challenge to believers. Yeah, that's such good advice because, and, and just to give everybody confidence, there truly is no question that you will not be able to find a good resource to answer. Um, just last weekend, I was speaking at a conference and somebody asked a, a question I had not personally heard before. And so I was just really honest. I did exactly what you said. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm up on a platform doing a Q and A, right? <laughs> and, and, and I literally said, you know what, this is new to me. I have never heard this. Um, I promise you there are resources out there on this question. I guarantee you this has been written mm -hmm. about. It's just new to me. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to offer an answer because I would just be, you know, talking out of the air. I don't know, but I would encourage you to look up resources. I can, you know, afterwards probably find something to give to you. Well, guess what I did? I literally just went to gotquestions.org and there it was, an article with the question mm -hmm. the person had just asked me. I mean, so it's it, there's just nothing new. It might be new to you. But it's not new to everyone. And I think by just saying, I don't know, but I can find out or I can maybe send you to a resource that might help you find out, that models humility because nobody can know everything. Michael, you know this is true. None yeah. of us, Frank Turek, Greg Kogel, nobody knows everything. Frank and Greg know almost everything. <laughs> I would right. say they're pretty close to like, I don't think you're going to stump those guys. But, you know, you might. There's not everybody can't know everything. But if we just approach this with humility with our friends and be totally willing, that's why I'm not afraid of Q&As. I'm not afraid of Q&As because I'm not afraid to say I don't know. Um, I, I think it, it – I've actually um, – I said I don't know to a question once that somebody had about some kind of obscure verse in Revelation. Mm -hmm. And did you know I had feedback from that where people were like, thank you so much for just saying you didn't know and not trying to answer because that makes me trust you when you do speak about something that you do know. And, right. and I think that that's, that's a, a real good way to go about it. I had a, a seminary professor when I was auditing a class. Somebody asked him a question, and I remember him saying, you know, I don't know, but I'll, I'll, do, I'll do a little research and get back to you next week. And I thought, oh, my goodness, if the Ph.D. professor doesn't know something, then it's okay for us to say we don't know either. So I think that's really good advice. Michael, if there was a, if, is there anybody that you just would be your dream guest to interview that you haven't been able to get on the, the movie yet? Who would it be? William Lane Craig. Yes. He's the only one that I haven't gotten that I feel like he was probably the most impactful um, of, of all the books that I read through and all of the videos I watched and the research that I did. He was the most impactful on mm. my on, on me coming to faith. Um, and his resources are so amazing. I, I think that he could add so much to the film. He's the one that um, we don't have. And I, I would absolutely love to have in the film. So maybe we could just like tweet at William Lane Craig or Insta mm -hmm. <laughs> at William Lane Craig with with this podcast, with maybe the trailer and be like, look what you could be a part of, William Lane Craig. Mm -hmm. No, I know it's, you know, when you're when you do what we do, you get hit up all the time and people are asking you for all sorts of stuff. And you just you have to say no to stuff sometimes. And maybe if they saw mm -hmm how good this is. Maybe maybe we could get William Lane Craig to join. That would be awesome. Well, Michael, is there anything else you'd, you'd want to add? Uh, you know, any other ways that people can be supporting you as you, uh, you know, go through this endeavor and try to get this film made? Uh, just I'll give you the last word here. Well, um, obviously, helping donate would be a huge help. But even if you can't, just sharing, just trying to get, get the word out that this film is being made. And um, there's trailers made on the website. I give my testimony. 
Um, there are tons of resources on the website that you can go and share with people. And I just, um, if, if anything that you could do to help, it doesn't have to be funds. You could just share the page or if you have resources or um, know someone that could help contribute to the film, that would help as well. Just whatever we can do to get the film out there. Um, it's, it's, it's proved to be a little bit of a challenge to, to create the film. I don't think I'm going to have problems getting it out there because it's not, it's all in God's hands and I can only yeah. do what I can do and let him take over from there. Um, but this is just such a passion that I've dedicated uh, a lot of my life into trying to create and something that I never in a million years, if you would have asked me six years ago, you would have never, ever thought that I'd be making a film like this. Um, and, and yet here I am. Uh, God has changed my life in, in ways that, uh, that are amazing. And I'm, I'm thankful to everyone and everyone for helping with this project that has. And um, it's just been, it's been a journey. It has. All right. Well, I can't wait to see what God is going to do through Michael and his ministry and this amazing film that I'm very excited to see make its way into the world. And so be looking for that. And again, uh, go to the website so you can donate and help get this out into the world so that we can share it with our friends who need to hear this amazing message and uh, communicate it in such an excellent way. All right, this next conversation that I'm gonna bring to you, I'm very excited about because it involves a campus pastor and a college student. So the, the campus pastor is Gary Stidham. He's the director of the Baptist Student Ministry at the University of Texas at Arlington. And one of the students who received Christ as a result of this ministry is Eliza West. And she's also joining us, and she's now the co-president on the executive board of the Baptist General Convention of Texas, and uh, is also a student leader uh, at the Baptist Student Ministry at UT Arlington. And what I loved about this conversation is we get to hear from someone, Eliza, who did not grow up in the church. She didn't grow up in a Christian home, didn't have Christian parents or pastors around her that shared this message with her. In fact, it wasn't until she went to college and then she heard the gospel for the first time. So where I'm bringing you in on the conversation is right when I ask Eliza to share her story of coming to faith with us. And then we get to talk through all sorts of uh, interesting things uh, as truth relates to what kids are facing on college campuses, uh, what it looks like to share the gospel on college campuses, what college kids are facing um, who want to uphold a Christian worldview. So it's a very valuable conversation, and I hope you get a lot out of it. So right now we're going right in with Eliza's story. Yeah, so I did not grow up in church. I did not grow up hearing the gospel, anything like that. I mean, growing up in Texas, I was a lot, around a lot of Christians, but nobody ever really sat down with me to share it, or I never really heard it until I got here to college. And um, a couple girls from the BSM met up with me because I said I was interested in their events and they had a gospel appointment with me. So they finally explained the gospel in a clear way that I understood. And then coming around BSM all the time for the following week, I came to really understand um, the gospel in its entirety and my need for it. Mm. Now, that's interesting to me because it seems like when you're looking out into culture and so many of the messages that are aimed especially at—I mean, you're a kid to me, Eliza. I know you're not a kid, but <laughs> I would just say kids, you know, kids like you. The messages—but honestly, these are the messages that are aimed at adults, too. I mean, I mean, you're an adult. You know what I mean. I'm an old person, okay. But even just the materials that are aimed at the church in general of, of all ages, not just the college age, are kind of starting with this idea— 
that you're perfect just as you are. There's really nothing outside of yourself that you need to be saved. So what 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 was it when you heard the gospel for the first time that made you realize you actually needed that? Hmm. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, growing up, I battled with a lot of mental health issues. Mm. And honestly, just living and striving for myself, I never really had like a purpose. Like mm. if truth and morality and what we live for is all subjective, then like there's nothing really concrete I ever had to rest in. And Jesus was that. He was concrete. And he could also, um, like there was a purpose for suffering, which is something unique I'd never really heard before being exposed to Christianity is there's a purpose and there's actually like beauty in suffering. Mm. And that was just a very unique message I'd never heard. That's, it's so fascinating to me as a lifelong Christian to hear that perspective. I'm always curious uh, to hear those types of stories from people who did not grow up in the church and didn't. So for me, it's like, this is all just like embedded into my DNA. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not something I ever had the opportunity to hear for the first time in a fresh way where I had lived any significant life outside of that, um, out of those truths, you know? But for me, it was sort of like, almost if you flip-flop that, it was like, I had never really heard any significant challenges against what I believed, at least intellectually, or at least in a way that I was forced to really engage with them. And so uh, my first book, Another Gospel, was written largely with, I mean, the church in general in mind, but also, uh, people who are college age and under to help them to really think through just the foundations of why we believe what we believe. Because in my case, like I said, it wasn't until I was an adult and I was in a, a, a scenario in which it was actually a pastor, right? So this was like, I was disarmed. I was, my guard was down because it was this pastor that I had come to trust and really respect. And he began to sort of tear away at the foundations of the things that I believed, and interesting that you would even bring up the idea that suffering could have value or purpose or that God could use that in our lives. You know, that that's one of the topics in progressive Christianity even that gets attacked. You know, this idea like, oh, Christians, they're they're so focused on suffering and they 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 think that there's this all this value in suffering. But there's even an article I was reading written by a progressive Christian that said, you know, there's no value in suffering. God wouldn't cause you to suffer. But I mean, we all know as Christians that it's in those times that we grow deeper. They it causes yeah. us to rely on Christ more. So it's it's neat hearing that perspective um, from someone who just that was kind of a new idea. And then from my perspective, you know, it's something that I believed deeply, but then it was sort of challenged. And it wasn't just that, but it was even things about the nature of Jesus, his resurrection. And then a lot of it was really surrounded the Bible, you know, just is the Bible something that we can trust, something that was reliable. So this sent me into a, a time of, I, I, I don't know quite what to call it. In the book, I called it a deconstruction because— <laughs> it really felt like it was demolishing or, you know, destroying the foundations of everything I believed. I've sort of backed off using that word recently as I've really studied deconstruction because it seems to me that in the deconstruction movement as it emerges online, there tends to be more of a rejection of this idea that there's absolute truth when it comes to religion mm -hmm. and morality. And I always wanted to know it was true. So, so that was kind of my journey. That's why I wrote another gospel. And then this new book, um, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, swings a little more broadly, I think, at the more popular slogans and messages, 
that are aimed at college students and, well, like I said, that it's really everybody, but because now we're in a social media world, there really isn't these kind of isolated groups where one group's only hearing one thing and the other one's only hearing another. But Eliza, we'll start with you on this one. What do you think is the biggest, what, what do you think is the biggest issue that your generation is facing when it comes to faith? Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, a lot of people coming into college don't even have faith to begin with. Like they weren't raised in it like I was. However, Christians like that people who were Christians growing up or become Christians in college, some of the issues they face. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with Eliza. The One of the biggest challenges is I think Generation Z is the first post-Christian generation. Um, whereas the millennials kind of came in and they had some exposure to church and then they deconstructed it. We meet mm. so many students who don't have any church background. So you're really starting in a pre-Christian mm. place with them. So that's that's huge. Um, Dan Kimball's a pastor in California, and he says that theology is the new apologetics. Like to defend the wow. faith, we have to actually explain the faith. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then gender, I would put gender and sexuality issues right mm -hmm. at the top of the list. That's like, mm -hmm. that's a hot button topic that you really have to address uh, yeah. with students. And it's a, uh, and it's what I did my recent doctoral studies in because it was such a pressing issue for our, my local students. Right. And so, so what, what would you say as far as what maybe kids just coming into a college environment in general, what are the issues they facing now? Let's talk about the Christian kids, kids who maybe identify themselves as Christians, what are the main issues that they're having to face as they come into these environments? I think a lot of them aren't exposed to difficult questions. Um, mm. They don't, they don't, a lot of them um, just look at cherry picked verses from other people's interpretations of scriptures and beliefs, and they don't really wrestle with the full context of passages themselves and they just kind of follow blindly other people, what other mm. people have taught and don't really wrestle with things themselves or tackle difficult questions. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely agree with that. I mean, we're talking about worldview issues, but really the biggest issue we you have is that students grow up in church, but they never have real deep spiritual formation, deep discipleship. They don't have a handle on God's word. And so they're just sort of, they've got a foundation under their feet, but they don't, it's not as steady as it ought to be when they get mm. to college. Gary, as a as a minister to this age group, why do you think so many Gen Z students struggle with their faith when they go off to college? I mean, we all know the statistics. There's, I mean, there's different numbers. I've seen numbers anywhere as high as 90% of kids leaving the church after, after high school. Of course, I think that number gets a little lower when you consider the ones who come back. Um, and then, you know, when I go and speak um, at conferences, one of the number one questions parents are asking me is like, what What are the reasons? Why? What? Have, where have we failed? What are the the holes we need to plug? Where? What are we missing as the church um, to equip Gen Z to be able to do that? Like, what do you think are the main triggers that are leading them to either deconstruct their faith or even just, you know, leave their faith altogether when they go to college? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, my my theory watching students high school to co college make that transition is really most of the fall off happens when they turn 16, not when they turn 18, mm. um, because that's when they get a driver's license and they don't have to come to church to see their friends and their activities ramp up. And so what was already in their heart, if they had a real relationship with God or not, that's when it manifests itself. So 
lot of youth pastors will tell you they can't find their seniors and their juniors. Mm. Um, and then when you get to college, it just intensifies. So the ones who had real deep, like genuine faith and they had adults involved in their life prior, I think they do pretty well when they get to college. But the ones who um, their parents made them come to church and they never had a real deep foundation when they got here, it, it's more just like when that manifests itself is when they come to college. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I've often wondered this too, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. But when we think about kids that are leaving church, the church after high school, sometimes I wonder if one of the things that might be playing a role in that is how isolated off into different groups we have everybody before that point. Because, you know, if you think about it, you start out in the nursery, then you go to the preschool class, then you go to the kindergarten class, then you're kind of off in this elementary classroom, then you go to youth group. And then I, I kind of remember experiencing this. Um, of course, I actually left my youth group a little early and started attending, quote unquote, big church when I was about 16 or 17. Um, but that feeling, though, of like, okay, I've had this really close-knit community for all these years, and now all of a sudden I'm supposed to go to big church, and it's like joining a new church in a way because you don't have that same structure, you don't have the same environment, the same community that's all in place. Do you think that might play a role as well? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, Eliza goes to a church in town that's family integrated, so they don't have age awesome. graded programming and students have a great experience because they interact with all ages. So a lot of students who meet Christ in our ministry, they like a church like that. I have mm. two teenage sons and they both have a much more, I, I love our church's youth group, but they much they have a much more profound experience interacting with adults in the church by serving, by serving in the music ministry than they do from um, from age-graded programs where they're siloed off. Yeah. Eliza, you have any thoughts on that? Because that, that's interesting that that is something that you notice that you like about your church. And do you think that that helps even in your own discipleship? And what benefit do you think that brings? Yeah, I was just going to talk about my church. <laughs> Good. Because I love it so much. I got involved in my church. It was the first one I started consistently going to when I became a Christian. So that was just a gift from God that I was immediately placed in both the BSM community, but also um, my church community. And so what we do at my church is we have our Sunday services and then we have um, kind of like a foundations program for children six and under. But from the age of six and up, everyone is in the same, same church service together. So from the ages of seven to 90, we have people in our wow. church service and it's just so wonderful. I have really deep friendships with people who are like more advanced in their years. I have deep friendships with people who are my own age. And we also have um, like a midweek life group where we gather with, again, intergenerationally, Ch little children are there too. And so I have discipleship relationships with um, older women, women who are old, just old enough to have kids and then women my age. So I get to encourage and be encouraged by um, women from all walks of life. And yeah, I just learned a lot from them and it equips me to better disciple people on my campus. That's awesome. So in, in the book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, we're talking about slogans. These are like memes you're going to see on social media, things like you're perfect just as you are. Of course, live your truth is a big one. You are enough. 
um, you are the boss of you. These are slogans that sound good. It's kind of like the thing you want to say to somebody if they're having a hard day. But then in the book, we kind of dig underneath them and look at how they kind of fail just on a logical level, but then it, also going to the Bible and seeing just the much more beautiful message and truthful message that the Bible has to offer. But I'm curious, Eliza, um, we can start with the, actually, I want to ask you both this because from your different perspectives, it would be interesting to hear. But Eliza, when you're just checking your social media, you you know, I don't know, you might be a little too young for Facebook. Facebook is for us older folks, I'm, I'm told. <laughs> but for whatever your social media platforms are that you're on, what are the dominant sort of slogan slash meme kind of messages that you're seeing come down your social media newsfeed that now as a Christian, you're going, hmm, I'm going to give that one a second thought. I'm going to I'm going to rethink whether or not I think that's even true. What would you say are the, the biggest ones or the most dominant ones? Yeah, just anything that's very self-focused. Um, yeah, like, kind of like we call that, it the gospel of self in the in the book, because yeah. it, it does seem like that's that's what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people just elevating themselves, honestly, even just worshiping themselves. Yeah. Like, I've heard people describe it as falling in love with themselves, um, like just valuing yourself above all else. And that just seems to be the theme in like all the kind of postings I see, like put yourself first. And obviously, you want to take care of yourself and prioritize your health and that kind of thing to an extent. But it just you really just see the idolatry of mm. people worshiping themselves, their significant others, their work, um, their achievements. And mm -hmm. what do you think that yeah, results in? What is that when you're reading these messages and you're trying and you kind of touched on this earlier with your testimony, but when you're trying to chase after these messages and truly embody these kind of cultural messages, what what result does that have? do you think in someone's life? Like I, I use the word exhausted because when I read some of these books, these self-help books or, and I'm again, I like that you said that we got to take care of ourselves, right? We want to have, mm -hmm. I know for me that when I'm working out, when I'm eating, Gary, I saw on your Facebook that you're a runner. I love to run. <laughs> um, I, you know, when we're doing those things, I, I have so much of a better day. I'm, I'm a much nicer mom when I've done a run or when I've done mm -hmm. some weightlifting or, you know, been active and if I've eaten healthy. So there's, there is some truth. And I think that's what makes so many mm -hmm. of these messages so attractive is that there's a certain amount of truth in them. Like, I think Christians can tend to swing to opposite ends of the, the pendulum to where we, you know, I've, I've known Christians who have just not taken care of themselves at all because they're just constantly putting everything else above their own needs. And they're trying to do that in a way of fulfilling scripture, but they're not at all taking care of themselves in the process, which exhausts them and also makes them kind of worn out and wrung out and cranky and all the things. So I, I like that you mentioned that because that's true. There's a balance. Like we want to take care of ourselves and and make sure we're not driving ourselves, you know, nuts with with all of the things. But but on the opposite end of the spectrum, then you have this kind of this hustle culture where, like you mentioned, it's putting your job, you know, idolizing your job or your significant other, even your pets or whatever it might be. Not that jobs, pets, and significant others are bad, but we don't want to worship those things. We don't want to worship mm -hmm. ourselves. And so um, I think that's a that's a really insightful observation. Gary, as a minister, um, when you're ministering to young people, what are what are the messages you're seeing them buy into? Yeah, Eliza and I were talking before the, this recording, and we talked about the idea that uh, the, this really strong current of moral relativism, where mm. everybody, the the sense is, uh, do, do your own thing. I'm not, I don't judge you. You can, you know, 
live your own truth to borrow your words. Yeah. Um, and that's a really strong message. But on the flip side, there are these really strong moral absolutes that you can't mm. violate. Like you yeah. have to be nice to people. You have to be tolerant. You have to be inclusive. And if you're not, then you're, you're ostracized, you're a pariah, you're ostracized, you're canceled, whatever it is. So it's this strange conflict between there isn't morality that's universal, but here are the rules. And if you don't live by these rules, then you're out. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like I've heard people talk about the intolerance of tolerance, right? <laughs> Where, you know, the word tolerance classically meant that you, by nature, disagreed with what somebody was saying, but you tolerated them. You you respected their right to have their opinion or to have their say. And that's really what tolerance meant. It actually assumed that there would be some disagreement, but now it seems like tolerance means the opposite. It's like, it's it, it, just as you've articulated, it's like, well, you know, you can think whatever you want as long as you follow these rules, like, the, you know, and, and being nice and being tall. I think I look out in a culture and it's like niceness has become like the key virtue, as long as you're just nice. But at the mm -hmm. same time, you go on social media and people have never been less nice. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind yeah. of like this weird reality where people are, it's its like hypocritical, but also blind. It's like they're not being hypocritical on purpose. It's just sort of the way that culture is. And I'm curious too, Gary, with your your research and doing your doctoral work on on sexuality and how, how do you think these messages tie in with the way young people in particular are viewing just the idea of their sexuality being their identity and and what are they buying into in that in that realm yeah for sure there's a there's a strong message in the culture that your sexuality is your ultimate identity and so in, in the the lgbt movement the sexual revolution that was what it said is that your your innermost desires expressing those is is what you need to do to be your authentic self um, and so when we counsel and try to disciple students in these areas, we, we, we tell them, don't make the issue about sexuality, make it about identity. So like mm. I, if they want to share with a friend who's in that movement, then they, they need to say, I want you to know the most important to thing to me in the world is my relationship with Jesus. It's where I get my ultimate identity. Yeah. And that's where I want you to get your ultimate identity. So you make it about identity, mm. not sexuality. And yeah. When you want to talk about these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it seems like uh, you mentioned that research that was recently done by, uh, I believe it was Barna and in conjunction with Impact 360, where they discovered mm -hmm. that. Now, there were some cool things they discovered that, you know, Gen Z is probably the first generation to really be open about talking about their mental health and being open, you know, destigmatizing, getting some good counseling and, and things like that. And I think that's that's really wonderful. But at the same time, the statistics are showing we're more depressed than ever, we're more anxious than ever, um, more stressed out than ever. So why why do you think students are so stressed out? It used to be maybe it was because of the big test coming up, but there's that plus all this other stuff. I mean, I'd love to hear from both of you. Why are students so stressed out? And how can be how can helping them become secure in their faith help give them peace in their lives? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why are you stressed out? <laughs> yeah. Why are you yeah. so stressed out, Alexa? <laughs> you don't there's seem stressed out to me at all. <laughs> um, there's a lot of things like college students are stressed out about. Um, a lot of times it is school or maybe work, or relationships. Um, I think a lot of the people I know are very morality and like doing good driven. Like so mm. many secular people I know are just so focused on doing good and benefiting others. Like it's their life 
purpose to achieve helping others. They want to be lawyers, doctors, all these kinds of things. But I think the reason they're stressed out is they just don't know why they're pursuing that. Mm. They don't have a foundation of like, I want to serve others because Jesus has commanded me to, and he first loved me. They're just doing it because I don't know, maybe they have some innate desire to do good, but they just don't know where that comes from. And Mm. so running after that without a concrete purpose or truth or something, and they also don't have um, any kind of fuel through that. Um, that's not from themselves. They, they're just exhausting themselves and kind of running in circles. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think when it comes to mental health, if you want to, you, we can't overstate how serious the crisis is on mm. college campuses. Like a, a panic attack with a, in a group of students like we have is just, is this kind of a normal week? Um, it's just, it's so pronounced and, and present. Um, as a parent, I think one of the causes is this idea that parents have sheltered their children so much from the ordinary stresses of life. So we mm. used to call it helicopter parents, then it was lawnmower parents who mm. mowed down every obstacle. So you get, you get. I, I, we were always the parents who let our kids ride bicycles in the neighborhood and and get scraped knees, but other parents would say that's too risky. But then those students grow up and come to college and they've never had to face real hardship or risk or be challenged. So if somebody challenges their idea, it devastates them. If somebody insults them, it devastates them because they've never had to build like a tolerance that, that muscle mm-hmm. for risk and challenge and hardship. Yeah. It's kind of like trying to run a marathon with no training at all. You're going to, you know, you're going to yeah. rip up your muscles to shreds. Well, I want to thank my guests from today, Michael, Ray, Lewis, and of course, Gary Stidham and Eliza West. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. I hope you all got a lot out of it as I did. If you're watching on YouTube, again, please subscribe, hit that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. If you're watching on uh, listening on audio platforms such as Google, Spotify, iTunes, leaving a five-star review is so helpful. Also, please, if you've read Live Your Truth and Other Lies, you found it helpful, go over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the places. Leave good reviews to help get the word out to other people about this message we're trying to promote here. And as always, as we pursue Christ, let's keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.